Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Collective health. American employers are in the healthcare business. It's time they had the technology to drive it. CollectiveHealth.com and Carnegie Mellon University's Master of Science in Software Management in Silicon Valley. In the part-time program, students take one evening class at a time once a week. cmu.edu slash iii. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, we get a rare chance to follow a mom and her kids from Mexico to the border near San Diego as they ask for asylum. And we talk to a woman who can't stop thinking about those kids at the border because it reminds her of when her parents left her in the Philippines 40 years ago. All the feelings that we had about being separated, it's almost like it was swept under the rug. Plus, a movie star from Berkeley and the price of fame in Hong Kong. It's like Beatlemania. They want a piece of you. I'm Sasha Koka, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We're hearing so much these days about the immigrant families being separated at the U.S.-Mexico border. South of the border, they're hearing about it, too. But people are still fleeing violence in Mexico and Central America. Separation policies don't seem to be enough to deter them. Like Elizabeth. She's a 30-year-old mom who's weighed the risks of going versus staying. We're not using her last name because she's afraid criminal groups in Mexico might find her. Elizabeth says she's afraid one of her kids will be killed if they stay in Mexico. Even if they're separated from her, she thinks they'd be safer in the U.S. The California Report's Alex Hall had a rare chance to follow Elizabeth and her family as they went to the border near San Diego to ask for asylum. She takes us on their journey step by step starting on the Mexican side, in Mexicali. Elizabeth and her three sons get into a car on a residential side street. They're carrying nothing but small backpacks for the kids, ages one, five, and nine. Her husband and brother ride in another car with Father Alvaro. He's a Mexican priest wearing a Hawaiian shirt, and he's guiding the family through the asylum process. Elizabeth has striking dark eyes and a ponytail, As we drive, she stares straight ahead in nervous silence. 
I ask her how she's feeling. She shakes her head and starts to cry. She looks out the window. Elizabeth and her family came to Mexicali from Michoacan after gang members shot one of her brothers in the head and then threatened to kill her, too. She and her family were desperate to get to the U.S. It felt like someone could walk up and shoot them at any moment. At the Calexico port of entry, cars wait in long lines. Elizabeth and her family walk up to cross on foot. Father Alvaro tells the family to stay relaxed. What they want is a credible fear interview. That's where U.S. officials determine whether a migrant qualifies for asylum or not. No matter what, he says, don't panic. Each person steps through a revolving metal gate. Elizabeth and her family silently take their place in line. They look unsure of themselves. An officer spots them and asks if they have IDs or passports. We want asylum, murmurs Elizabeth's brother. The officer tells them to go across the street and talk to Mexican officials. Apparently this happens a lot. When I get there with the family, an official tells me to stop recording. But basically this is what happens next. The Mexican officials tell Elizabeth and her family a lot of people are waiting to ask for asylum. Someone will call when it's her family's turn to be processed. They sign a logbook. It's thick and dusty, something you might find in an old hotel. Outside, Father Alvaro says this list is just another bureaucratic hurdle to deter migrants. He says people that try to enter the legal way run up against so many obstacles, they get discouraged. Many go find a coyote who will smuggle them across without papers. Elizabeth and her family go home, and so do I. A few days later, they get a call to come back and try again at the border crossing. After that, I don't hear from her. It's hard to track what happens to people once they ask for asylum from U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or CBP. For the next week or so, I look for Elizabeth on a government website of immigration detainees, but nothing comes up. She isn't responding to messages either. Until one day... Elizabeth messages me to tell me what happened when she crossed. She says once they went back to the border, CBP took them in for processing. She says after she was interviewed, she and her kids were taken to a big open room. The air conditioning was on all day and all night. It was freezing. They slept on bug-infested mats on the floor. Elizabeth says there were nine other moms waiting there with their kids. She says officers would call each woman up one by one to talk. And when they came back, they compared stories. Most of the women, she says, were told similar versions of the same thing. If you move forward with your application for asylum, you'll be placed in detention possibly for more than a year. And you and your children will likely be separated. This was around two weeks after the Trump administration made a commitment to stop separating families. Elizabeth says the food they were given gave everyone diarrhea. For dinner, she says, it was spaghetti with three meatballs that smelled horrible and a hard piece of bread you couldn't stab with a fork. Her sons kept saying they were hungry. She noticed they were losing weight. Her one-year-old had blood in his diaper. He had only had baby formula. So she asked an officer for solid food. 
She says an officer responded, this isn't a seven-star hotel. What do you want? Dead kids or skinny kids? Niños muertos o niños flacos. On the fifth night, Elizabeth says her five-year-old peed his pants from the cold. In the morning, she told the officer she wanted to go back to Mexico. They gave her a blank piece of paper, not in official form, and told her to write down why she was giving up her asylum claim. I asked CBP about the conditions Elizabeth described. They didn't respond to specifics like bugs in the sleeping mats, but they sent a report showing border facilities meet the requirements for detaining children. A spokeswoman said the agency, quote, maintains a high standard of care for individuals in its custody. Recently, I sent Elizabeth a message. She's found some work in Mexico. She doesn't want to say where she and her family are staying. She's worried criminals in her hometown could track her there. She says she thought applying for asylum in the U.S. would be a way to keep her family safe. She was even willing to risk being separated from her children. But then she saw them hungry and sick while they were at the border. If this is what happened in six days, she says, imagine what could happen locked up for a year or two. They could die. For The California Report, I'm Alex Hall. lot of reasons parents want to bring their kids to the U.S. and a lot of reasons they could get separated. When Gladie Lee was a toddler, her parents left her behind in the Philippines, seeking better jobs in California. That was four decades ago. Gladie wonders about the kids waiting at the border today and what they'll remember when they're older. As part of our series about the lingering effects of family separation, Gladie tells us she's still uncovering emotions and secrets from that tender time. Back in the 1970s, long-distance phone calls were expensive. So the Ginto family, split apart by the Pacific Ocean, used cassette tapes to stay connected. In the Philippines, Gladie remembers her grandparents holding out a tape recorder. Gladie, come here. It's time for you to say hi to your mom and your dad. Tell them what it's like here. Do you want them to bring you anything from the States? And then I'm like, I want an umbrella. I don't know what the umbrella thing was about, but like we wanted umbrellas. When Gladie was two, her mom Nella got a visa to go to the U.S. as a nurse. Her dad got a work visa, too. The idea was to bring the kids over as soon as they could. After a long hospital shift in the Bay Area, Nella couldn't come home and kiss her kids, but she could pick up a tape recorder. You know, how are you, Gladie? Have you been playing, you know, short talks? Today, mother and daughter are looking for some of those tapes. Nella plugs in an old boom box. Let's put it in. And listen. This tape was labeled 1978. And there's Gladie, age four, speaking Tagalog. But this tape isn't from the Philippines. It's from a few months later, after she and her brother finally got to the U.S. She's telling her grandparents she's going to kindergarten soon, and the family's sharing a one-bedroom apartment. And then there's a tape sent back 
from Gladys' grandparents. That's them promising to kill a lot of chickens so they can feast next time the kids visit. But there are so many tapes that are lost or broken. Maybe the sounds from that critical time apart have been erased. But not in Gladys' mind. It's all still vivid, even at age 44. When I talk to her alone, away from her parents, Gladys tells me how painful it really was. But everyone in the Philippines told her she wasn't supposed to be sad. Her parents had made it to America. That was the dream. And so the dream was happening for my family. But that's not how it felt to a two-year-old. I, I was sad every day when she was gone. And I just didn't know who to express that to because I, I think everyone around me was saying that you should be happy that you're going to join your mom soon. <laughs> All the feelings that we had about being separated, it's almost like it was um, swept under the rug. Ah, oh, right over there. Once Gladys had made it to California when she was in elementary school, she saw a movie that reopened some of those wounds. This is Jumbo. You know that scene in Dumbo where Dumbo's mom is in the little jail cell and then she reaches over and she grabs Dumbo with her trunk through the the bars and it felt like I was Dumbo. The pain came back again this summer with the stories of the kids on the border. Gladys says the worst news story for her featured a father who called his child in detention. The son was doubting him, asking frantic questions. Don't you love me? Why did you leave me? Why can't we be together? So when you're a child, those are the only things that you really care about. Gladys was reunited with her parents when she was four. She remembers her dad waiting at the gate in San Francisco. Where is he? Is he that one? You know, is that my dad? <laughs> and then when I see him, finally I'm like, oh, that's totally my dad because he's, he's the one that is hugging me right now and he loves me. But after nearly two years apart, it wasn't just joyful hugs and kisses. Gladys still has scars. And hearing those kids crying on the news she knows it will be the same for them. I definitely think that there's a mental health component. It almost feels like it's affected almost really every relation, close relationship that I've had with people. Or any relationship, like the one with her children's violin teacher who's moving away. I mean, like, the idea of her leaving just kind of sets me off. And just uh, people leaving is very traumatic. And it's just the violin teacher, you know? Gladys' boys are now 10 and 14. When they were younger, she stayed home for a few years. She wanted to be there during their toddler years because her mom and dad couldn't be there for hers. But she's grateful her parents got her to California where she could make that choice. They put us through college and we have jobs. So that's how it's it's come full circle, I guess. Yeah. Back at her parents' house in Vallejo, Gladys joins them on the couch to look at photo albums. Some are so old they have to unstick the brittle plastic pages. In one photo, everybody's dressed up. Gladys is too, adorable in a pink sundress, but she looks sad and confused. So that was the day you left for the States, right, Mom? 
That was the day you yes, left? Yes, yes. That was 1976. I think I might just be making that up, but it looks like to me like you were crying. But her mom ignores that. It's only when I press her that she opens up. Yeah. And so when you had your two young children and this was the day when you were leaving, how did you feel? Um, I guess it's like a mixed feeling because when I was young, I said I really wanted to be a registered nurse and then go to America. But uh, I didn't really completely feel that the separation will be that bad. And so I realized I had been crying and really missed them, even leaving them to the uh, grandparents. It's so heartbreaking, you know. And then her dad reveals something huge, something Gladdy never knew before. He and his wife didn't choose to leave their kids behind in the Philippines. They had to. They couldn't get them a visa. We applied all at the same time, but the consul took them off, the two kids, because the consul said uh, to establish ourselves here first. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. I thought, um, I thought what, so what was the original plan? that all of us were coming over here all at the same time. Mm. They didn't want to leave their kids, but it was a sacrifice they had to make to get to California. Oh, my goodness. Every night that you will be in that awful situation thinking about your children. Mm -hmm. I could stay. (laughs) Her mom puts a hand on Gladys' back, then chokes up and hugs her. But Gladys remains stiff. She's still protecting her parents from her pain. I know, Mom. I know. <laughs> I'm so glad that I have a daughter. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're doing good, right? Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> Later, I asked Gladys how that felt, seeing her mom cry about the separation. Gladys says she realized something new. Nella felt guilty about that time. And when she felt her mom's hand on her back... It was like she was finally acknowledging the little girl she left behind. When he's in Asia... Daniel Wu says he can't walk down the street without being mobbed by fans. It's like Beatlemania. They want a piece of you. But here in his native California, hardly anyone recognizes him, even though he has more than 60 big screen credits to his name. Like the Chinese action thriller That Demon Within. KQED's Chloe Veltman tells us now that Hollywood's starting to pay more attention to Asian-American actors. Daniel Wu may not be able to lead a normal life in the U.S. for much longer. In the dystopian AMC TV action series Into the Badlands, Daniel Wu stars as a lethal warrior on a quest to discover the truth about his past. Daniel's character gets into a lot of fights. I've been involved in like 30 fights in three seasons, 40 fights. At 43, Daniel is in fantastic shape, wiry and lean with the chiselled features of a boy band frontman. 
Even so, all those fight scenes take a toll on the body. The martial arts expert and actor has sustained a torn ACL and broken ankle over the years. And he doesn't want to end up like his mentor and former manager, Chinese action hero Jackie Chan. I didn't want to be that 60-year-old guy with, like, I can't stand up because my discs in my back are crushed. Right? And that's how Jackie is. So lately, Daniel's been changing up his training regimen. So we'll just start with crescent kicks, so to kind of get the, sure. the leg up. And you want to move down? Sure. At the open mat, a tucked away dojo in Oakland near Daniel's home, the actor practices acrobatic kicks up and down the room with his coach, Matt Lucas. But they spend more time stretching and doing yoga than they do on hardcore fight moves, like iron palm, iron fist, which Daniel demos for my benefit. This is a bag full of marbles, and you slowly punch at it until you build up the strength that it doesn't hurt anymore. Yeah, it hurts. It hurts a lot. Daniel Wu's career path seems improbable when you consider his sheltered, middle-class Bay Area upbringing. His highly educated, career-driven parents emigrated from Shanghai via Hong Kong and Taiwan in the 1950s. They had two girls and then a son. But he died tragically at the age of two in an auto accident on the UC Berkeley campus. They were up at the Lawrence Hall of Science and he was hit by a car in the parking lot. Daniel says his parents wouldn't speak about his older brother, who died before he was born, for years. So when he came along, they were very protective. They would not let me play football. They would not let me do a lot of things that were dangerous, you know, uh, uh, that I could get hurt. Of course, I go into martial arts. <laughs> and then now I'm a, an action star uh, where danger happens almost on a daily basis. Daniel's passion for martial arts stems from old kung fu movies he saw on TV as a kid. One day, his grandfather took him to San Francisco's Chinatown to see Shaolin Temple starring Jet Li. Right. It was just so exciting. I was only seven. And I got home, I was like, Mom, I want to learn Kung Fu. Daniel's mom said no. But after a few years, she caved. Daniel trained locally as a teen, and as an architecture major at the University of Oregon, he started a club focused on wushu, a non-combative style of Kung Fu. Then, in 1997, after graduating, Daniel headed for Hong Kong to witness the handover from Britain to China. Hello again from Hong Kong. On the night, the colony is about to be handed back to China. Daniel was having a drink in a Hong Kong bar a month after the handover when a talent scout approached him about appearing in a TV commercial. Daniel says he'd given up on a career in architecture and besides, he needed the money. It just so happens that Hong Kong film director Yun Fen caught the ad and gave Daniel his first big break. The director tapped the novice to play one of the leads in Bishonen, his drama about an ill-fated gay romance. Once I got on set the first day, I was like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. Daniel says it was hard for him to break fully into the Hong Kong film industry as an ABC, American-born Chinese. Even though I'm the same skin color, same hair color, same culture, I was treated differently at first. But after a couple of years, Daniel says the community accepted him. And he went on over two decades to amass major celebrity wealth and accolades across Asia for his work. You feel a sense of belonging. You feel wanted. You feel like you have a value to these people and that what you're doing is making them happy. I think that's the most uh, touching thing that's happened to me. Eventually, Daniel's name started to become known outside of China, 
at least among the kung fu cognoscenti, like hip-hop artist and movie director RZA, who cast the actor in his martial arts film The Man with the Iron Fists. When you forge a weapon, you need three things. The movie was shot in 2011 in China with a mixed cast of Asian and Hollywood actors. The project involved big names, including Russell Crowe and Quentin Tarantino. But RZA says no one made as much of an impression on the set as Daniel did. I'm telling you, nobody gave two cents about none of us. When Danny came on the set, everybody went crazy. All of a sudden... I was making a movie, you know what I mean? But Hollywood continued largely to ignore Daniel. The actor says he returns to California for meetings with movie executives on occasion and usually came away disappointed. They don't really know what they're looking for. They're just looking for someone Chinese, you know, or Asian. I'm not sitting in a room auditioning for a role that's just based on my race. But recently, Daniel says things have started to change thanks to the dynamics of the marketplace. China is an important financial market for Hollywood. Earlier this year, China beat North America in box office revenue for the first time, fueling expectations that it might soon become the world's number one movie market. Now, Daniel says Hollywood is starting to take the talent pool more seriously after decades of offering Asian actors little more than minor, racially stereotyped character parts. Because they realize that the Chinese audiences are much smarter than that and get pissed off when you do something like that to our beloved actors and won't go see the movie. Daniel points to Sung Kang, known to audiences here for the Fast and the Furious franchise, John Cho from the Harold and Kumar films, and lost TV series actor Daniel Day Kim as fellow Asian actors now making it in the US. All these guys have been working for so long and finally making it now into shows, uh, but it's still not at the point where I'd like it to be. But he says a new generation of Hollywood executives that grew up in a more multicultural environment now has the power to reflect that diversity on the screen. For The California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman. Today we welcome new listeners on three California public radio stations that now carry our show. This song by Craig Malia called Nevada City is a perfect hello to our new listeners tuning in on KVMR. Nevada City. Nevada City is a small town, but it's not a sleepy town. Nevada City. And hello to everyone listening to us on the brand new station 105.7 in Grass Valley. One thing I love about Grass Valley is how the evening sun lights up the meadows in shades of gold and peach. It's just lovely. And down in the Coachella Valley, we say hello to folks listening on KCOD with this song called Coachella by 50 Shades of 60. One thing I like about Coachella is how uh, alive and resilient the people are. Yes, we are farm workers, but we're much more than that. We're a community with a lot of stories. That's Carla Martinez and Olivia Rodriguez, youth reporters from Coachella Unincorporated. Cy Musiker, who just retired from KQED to move to Grass Valley, and Gloria Roberts from Nevada City, all telling us what they love about where they live.
This week, we also say goodbye to Ingrid Becker, the California Report's longtime senior producer. It's because of her that people in places like Coachella and Nevada City can now hear our show. Ingrid started at KQED 20 years ago and spearheaded the California Report for much of that time. When you hear a story about farm workers picking oranges in the Central Valley or people fleeing their homes in the early hours of a deadly wildfire, Ingrid was often the editor behind those stories. She worked with reporters late at night to get the facts right and to honor the people whose stories we tell. Ingrid is not only a terrific editor, she's a kind, compassionate boss. Thanks for bringing out our best, Ingrid, and cheers to your next chapter. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director this week is Bianca Taylor. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with help from Rob Spate and Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our production team includes Susie Racho, Carrie Feibel, April Demboski, Taiki Hendricks, David Marks, and Marisol Medina Cadena. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems and the Wesley Foundation, improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.